If you'll turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. You know, the Webster's Dictionary defines contentment as peaceful satisfaction. Peaceful satisfaction. I like another dictionary's definition, which is a state of being mentally or emotionally satisfied. Mentally or emotionally or spiritually satisfied. You know, Solomon in the Bible was one of the richest, wisest men to ever live. And this is what he said in Ecclesiastes 5.10. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied. With their income, this too is meaningless. Meaningless. They asked Rockefeller, one of the richest men of his day, how much money would it take for him to be happy? And Rockefeller said, a little bit more. At that time in his life as the richest man in the world, he could only eat crackers. Although he had all the money the world had to offer, he could only eat crackers because of the ulcers in his stomach from stress. He might have had wealth in physical terms, but he did not have emotional, spiritual satisfaction. And, and I tell you, a lack of contentment can cause great stress in our lives, our marriages, our church. And so I want to look at this morning what the Bible says about contentment. Not what I say, not my opinion. I'm still working on me. I'm still working on getting closer to God daily in a way that I can overcome my fleshly desires. And I bet you are too. So the parable here of a young rich ruler. Man, what a, what a way to be proclaimed. Young, rich, and a ruler. I mean, he's got it, uh, the world, under his feet. And Jesus uses this parable, this example in Luke 18, uh, verse 18, that this ruler questioned Christ. And he said, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Is that the most important question that can be asked of God? You know, if you had one question to ask God, is that not an important question? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, you know the commandments. And the young man said, all these things, all these rules I've kept from my youth. Man, he's living a good life. Everybody knows, and he's blessed. He's young, but he's also rich. You know how focused you have to be to be young and rich and to rule, to be recognized as a leader in your community and to be young? And that's who this man is. 
And he said, all these things I've done. But Jesus said, there's one thing that you still lack. He said, all that you possess you need to sell and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasures in heaven. Is it a treasure? Is heaven really a treasure? Is heaven something that we desire? Is it bigger than our lives? Is it bigger than that car that you dream about, the house on the hill, the job that you desire, the end of the college degree when it's placard upon the wall? Is God, is heaven bigger than that? Is God, is heaven greater than that? All we see here, this young rich ruler is asked to sell everything he has and to give to the poor. And he says, you shall have treasures in heaven. And then he says, follow me. You know, I was lost once when I was a teenager hunting in the mountains of Tennessee. I got into the middle of the mountains and I looked around and every tree looked the same. And a fear entered my life at that moment. A gripping fear of I did not know which way to go or to turn. I was lost. I was embarrassed. I was scared confused, and no one to help. From a distance, I was able to look from a mountaintop, and I seen the top of a silo. And I knew that silo was probably close to a farm. And I made my way to that farmer, and I knocked on the door, which I was nervous and scared to do. And I knocked on the door, and, and, and an older man came to the door, and I told him, I, 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 with choking in my voice, I was lost. That's embarrassing for a 16-year-old. And I told him kind of where we parked the truck when they dropped me off, and he said, I know exactly where to take you. You know something interesting? I didn't argue with him. I didn't say, I don't know if I believe you. I don't know if I can trust you. No, I was lost. Sometimes you have to get lost to get saved. Sometimes you have to realize that God has something to offer. And you have to understand that God knows the way and trust that. And so I simply took God by the hand. And he's been leading the way ever since. And I tell you, there's a relief that comes about. He says, if you do this, follow me. Is that a great invitation? Who do we follow? Who do we follow? Is it our peers? Is it religion? Is it our job? Is it our community? Is it our fears or our faiths? Who do we follow? I followed that old farmer because he knew the way. It's the same reason I follow Jesus. He knows the way. I simply took him by the hand, and he leads me the right way. Do you know who knows my tomorrow? Not you, not me. My wife thinks she does. Where's she at? She's already got it planned out, that's what I'm saying. She's got a list of stuff for me to do. But we don't know how that's going to work out, do we? But God knows your tomorrow. God knows who you're going to marry. 
God knows your profession. God knows your future. God knows your family. God knows your finality. God knows your eternity. God knows. Who do you want to take by the hand? Don't just grab anybody's hand. A friend, it's a great hand. A preacher is a great hand, but they'll let you down. They'll fail you. But God will not fail you. God will get you there. Amen? That's exciting to know because eternal life matters. Oh, and you're 16. Oh, my goodness. I trained horses for a living. Oh, I'd fall off a horse. I'd get bucked. I'd get thrown. I'd get stepped on. I'd step up, step out, pat myself off, do it again. Now I trip going down the steps, and I'm sore for two weeks. <laughs> oh, when you're young, oh, life is at your feet, and you say, you know, nothing can stop me, nothing can hinder me, but we're living in a time where the young people are attacked greater now than any other time in history. You heard the testimony of the young man that was baptized, gripped by the things of this world. Innocence is so quickly taken from this generation. Sin is so available to each and every one of us. Silent sin. You know, in America, it's rare to find anyone who is truly satisfied. Why do millionaire movie stars take drugs and commit suicide? They have the beauty, the fame, and the finances the world has to offer, and yet they're empty and lonely. Not all, but some. And so, Paul deals with contentment. We see that Jesus requires and calls us to be content, but Paul says, I've learned it. Oh, you mean I can learn to be content? Yes, you can. And Paul is going to share with us how he was able to become content. Look at Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Philippians 4, 11 through 13. If you don't have your Bible, look on the screen. I might lie to you. You better be careful. Open your Bibles. Look at the screen. Check me out and watch what I say so that you might not be misled or taken down any wrong path. This is what the greatest, or at least one of the greatest apostles, Paul, after all, is somebody we can look to when it comes to a relationship with God. He's not perfect. We know his history. But we see where God brought him throughout Scripture. Philippians 4, 11 through 13 says this, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. And he says, I know in verse 12 how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. And in every circumstance I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things. This is the verse you remember, right? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Do you know contentment's not natural? If you're taking notes, realize contentment is not natural. He says, for I have learned 
It's learned, not earned. Contentment is learned, not earned. Do you know there's proof that sin abounds? That the sin nature abounds? Do you know no one has to teach a child to lie? No one has to teach a child to be selfish. Rather, we go to great lengths to teach children to tell the truth, don't we? And not be selfish. Sinful nature is natural. Charles Spurgeon said this, As salt flavors every part of the ocean, so does sin affect every part of our nature. And the Bible lists some of these natural sins in Galatians 5, 19 through 21. He says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, immorality, impurity, idolatry, strife, jealousy, disputes, envy, drunkenness, and all these type of things. You know, I, I grew up, as I said, on a farm in Tennessee, and, and we planted corn in the bottom fields on the river. But we had to prepare those fields. You know what's in those fields? Rocks. The rocks had to be removed. The ground was hard, had to be broken up, plowed, planted, and prepared for growth. It had to be cultivated. That land had to be cultivated. It didn't grow fruit or corn naturally. But do you know what it did grow naturally? Weeds. Do we have any gardeners here? Anybody like, you know how weeds just, I mean, you can't kill them sometimes. You can do all you want and they just keep popping back up. The sin seems to be hard to kill. The sin nature. So contentment has to be cultivated. It's not natural. Psalms 119 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to his word. God's word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word have I treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Contentment takes root when you begin to pour in the Word. When you begin to pour the Word into your life like water upon a field, then that Word can grow. So it's not natural. If you think that you're going to grow content just by living life, it's not going to happen naturally. It's not going to happen. Contentment's going to come. And what is contentment? Sounds like a big word, right? Never lose track of what contentment is. It's satisfaction. We want to be satisfied. If we're not, it will cause problems in our life. It will cause us to move in directions we don't want to. Look, secondly, contentment is not reactive. It's not reactive. Look at verse 12. He says, I know how to get along with humble means, and I know how to live in prosperity. Contentment's less about what I have and more about what I believe. Contentment's less about what I have and more about what I believe. Do you mean if I did get that house, I wouldn't be content? Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. Do you know what a brand new car is in six months? An old car. Do you know another thing that hurts or conflicts with contentment? Comparison. Comparison is the greatest enemy to contentment. 
How many look in the mirror and compare? I remember when social media started getting big. You know, I grew up where I'm from. Still to this day, there's no internet. No internet where I'm from. And when social media come out, uh, it, it was amazing to me how good people looked on screen. But I didn't know you could polish that. Did you? Do you know some people polish their pictures? I'm just an old guy. I didn't know you could do this. I started noticing people look better on screen than they do when I see them in church. It's interesting to me that you can polish yourself nowadays. Oh, man, I tell you, the only reason I knew it, somebody did a joke on me, and they took a picture, and they sent it out, and it made me look 20 years younger, and I actually tricked me. I thought, man, I really look good in that picture. I just thought, man, it was just a good day. You know what I'm saying? But they had polished it. I didn't know you could do that. Probably not even what it's called. It's just what I call it, right? But anyway, you can edit that and make it all perfect. You can take all the blemishes away. I've heard that if you point the camera from a high angle, you look skinnier. I got a tripod. I hold it now. They say, you look like you're losing weight, Pastor, every time I see you. But it's hard to take those pictures, you know, when you're trying to hold it with one hand. Listen, you are comparing yourself with these people in your life that are not you. For example, I was told years ago that if you try to be somebody else, you'll always be second best. But if you'll be yourself, you'll always be number one. There's only one of you. Oh, I tell you, my, my, my daughter's here with my grandkids, and she was comparing the grandkids with who they look like, me or our side of the family or his side of the family. And she says, uh, I think he has your nose, Papaw. I said, well, you wouldn't know because this one's been smashed. <laughs> this is not the nose God gave me. This is the one that a, a three-year-old stud horse charged me and hit me straight in the face and smashed it all over, and they had to rebuild it. It's the one the doctor wanted me to have, right? But you know what? There is no other person in this world that was created like and by God, like me, right? There's no other person that is created by God like you. You're unique. You're special. You're a creation of God, and God does not make mistakes. You can be content in how God has made you and who God is making you. You can celebrate that. Remember the old song, God's still working on me to make me to be the person I ought to be. You know, when we try to fill a void of God in our lives with anything else, we're always going to be lacking. Lastly, contentment is not unreachable. Contentment is not unreachable. Look at verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul understood contentment. He understood that contentment was in a right relationship with Christ. To live, Paul said, in Christ. To live in Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. In Philippians 1.21, Paul understood what eternity meant. He understood the importance of his relationship with God. 
Paul's contentment was not on the things here, but on the things above and who God was and who God was making him. I want to share just a quick story with you before we close. I read a story and was talking to another pastor friend about a man named John Harper. Have you ever heard of that name? John Harper. John Harper was a pastor slash preacher, and he was on his way to preach one of the most important messages of his life at a church in Chicago. And the church was named Moody Church, named after the great evangelist D.L. Moody. And this John Harper, on his way to preach, he was a Scottish man, in Chicago, got on a boat. And the boat's name on the side of it was the Titanic. And the Titanic, which was the ship that was never supposed to sink, be careful what you put your trust in, the things of this world, hit iceberg. Now, Harper and his six-year-old, I believe, daughter, she was a young lady. He was a widower, but he had his daughter with him. He made his way to a lifeboat, got her onto the lifeboat, and because he was a widower, he could have got onto the lifeboat with her, but he chose not to. And he ran from person to person with the most important thing he felt he could do at that moment in his life. And do you know what he did? He began to tell everyone about Jesus. The ship began to sink, and Harper was heard screaming out, women, children, and the unsaved to the lifeboats. He ran up to one man, and he asked the man, do you know Christ? And the man said, no. And he handed him his life jacket, and he said, you need this more than me. Well, guess what? You know the story. The boat sunk. And as John Harper was swimming from person to person in the water, now where I'm from, there's a place called Pigeon Forge, and they have a Titanic museum, and and I'm not into learning too much. I struggle. I've got dyslexia. I struggle through school. I struggle through college. I'm starting, I start my doctorate in August, and I don't know how I've even got there only by the grace of God. But my wife's a school teacher, an English teacher. It's hard to believe for all these years. She's corrected me almost every day of my life on my speaking. But she loves that stuff. So we enter this museum on the Titanic, and they give you a name of a person, like a card, and you don't know what's going to happen to that person, and that's part of the journey. But I'd heard that there was a thing toward the end of the museum where you could put your hand in the water and feel how cold it was uh, in that day the Titanic sunk. Oh, I couldn't wait. Oh, I was passing all the papers and magazines and articles and statues. I was running through. It was like two hours later when my wife caught up with me. I had to go straight to the water and touch it. I wanted to see how cold it was. It was cold. Just to keep your hand in it for a minute. I, I didn't know that because I was from Tennessee. Now here, I understand a little bit better. We went up to a glacier and I put my hand in the water here. And you could barely keep it in that long because it's cold. It causes hypothermia, you know, if you fall in the water here. 
And so you imagine how dangerous it is. And he's swimming from person to person sharing Jesus. And he comes up to one man that's, that's hanging on some driftwood. And he asks him and he says, uh, no, John, I don't know Christ. And then John Harper continues to swim on person to person. He comes back a second time and asks the man if he has accepted Christ. And the man accepts Jesus right there in those dark, cold waters. And as he accepts Christ, as he cries out to God, John Harper begins to sink into the dark ocean. That man, the reason we know the story, was picked up by a lifeboat right after that moment. And later on in, in Canada, Ontario, he was at a survivor's meeting sharing this story of what happened to him. And John Harper said this, I mean, the man that was saved said this about John Harper. He said, I am the last convert of John Harper. Now, I share that story for one reason, to ask you, what is that most important thing to you that you would share in your last moments? Secondly, what would make John Harper give up the life jacket? What would make him swim from person to person instead of getting into the lifeboat? What would make a man do that? Well, I want to tell you something. I read a book years ago called The Fox Book of Martyrs. And as I read that book as a young Christian, I felt guilty. As I read those pages and I listened to how people were martyred for God throughout the generations, I said to myself and my God, I don't think I could do that. I seen where one family gave their life for God in the jungles of another country, side by side with their children. I mean, does the thought not enter your mind that I could disclaim Christ for a moment? No different than any other sin. And then as soon as I get out of trouble, say, hey, I still believe in Jesus. I just said that to save my skin. I was thinking those thoughts. I was ashamed because I didn't feel like I was the kind of Christian or man that would do anything like that or what John Harper did. And I cried out to God with embarrassment and shame that I was not that kind of Christian. And you know what God said to me? Neither were they. Neither were they. I made them that kind of Christian. I strengthened them in their weakness. I lifted them up in their lowest time. I gave them courage when they had no courage. I gave them faith instead of fear. I did it. Trust in me. And I took those words and I've received them every time I preach. <laughs> right, Philip? Every time I preach, people have come up to me. I've had people come up to me and say, Pastor, that was the worst sermon I've ever heard. I said, well, I'm sorry because I felt it was the best I've ever preached. I think that God uses people like me. And if you're sitting there going, I can't believe I've had to sit here and listen to this message, and I could have did so much better. I think the reason God uses people like me is because he gets all the credit.
He gets all the glory. My first church, I pastored two other churches before I came here. And the first church I pastored, I was there 16 years. My last year there, there was over 300 people saved. And they called me from the state, TBC, and they said, Preacher, how does a little church in the middle of nowhere see 300 people saved? I said, because we had 300 lost people come. You'll get it in a minute. In other words, saved people are not getting saved. We still have a, a purpose, and that's to share the gospel with the world, to share what Jesus means to us. Now, we're not in a, a water that's freezing us to death that we might die any minute, but we're not promised another minute. You're not promised the, another day. What will you do with it? Will you glorify God with what you have? Some of you have been gifted. Let me say this. All of you have been gifted in great ways. Whatever that gift is, use it for the Lord. Glorify God. Glorify God. If you were to hear the last words that John Harper said, accept Christ, what would you do with that today? As you leave here today, I want you to ponder on that this week. Where am I at with God? Where's my life at? What's some things that I can surrender and change?